Before we turn to the sermon this morning, just a couple of quick things. Um, if you're visiting with us this morning and you need a Bible, just raise your hands. We got a couple of ladies serving this morning. Be glad to bring you a copy of God's Word. If you just raise your hands and hold them up high so that they can see you. Anybody need a Bible this morning? All right. Oh, no, she's just scratching her head. I'm sorry. <laughs> All right. Amen. Uh, also, I just want to um, reiterate our brother Tim's announcement about the Just Gospel Conference. Uh, I hope that every member of this church and every visitor here uh, will come. That's next uh, week, Thursday, March 5th to Saturday, March 7th. Our theme this, this year is Pilgrim's Politics. Uh, we've been singing about this pilgrim theme even in this last hymn. Um, that should shape how we live and how we focus our lives and how we engage politically. Uh, 2016, uh, none of you will be surprised, was a, a rough election year for the country. Um, those tremors were felt not only in the country, but in the church. It felt in this church too. So my real burden for this conference is that it might be, as the subtitle says, healing. Healing conversations about Christians and politics. That we would disciple one another with the scripture and prepare one another to bear faithful witness to Christ uh, in this election season. Um, we should be the most sane people on the planet. We should be the most influential people on the planet because our hope isn't bound to this planet. Because our hope is kept in heaven with Christ and that frees us to bear witness to things that are both for us and inconvenient for us. And so I hope you come uh, to the conference and dig in with us uh, into the Bible and into that theme. Last thing I want to say before I pray and we turn our attention to God's Word, uh, I just want to encourage my brother Brian and my sister Susan. Um, you guys have been gifts to us as a church. We love you, uh, your family. Uh, Brian, we forgive you. <laughs> I, I do want to say to you, Brian, it's not wrong to make a career-centered decision. You're not in sin for choosing a good opportunity uh, for you and your family. In fact, that comes, we trust, from God's hand. That's God's blessing, and so we give God thanks for that. And the other thing I want to say, just by way of encouragement, as I listen to your three prayer requests, um, that particular decision about the job you might think of as God-centered, or excuse me, career-centered, but your heart's not career-centered, given those prayer requests. Those, those prayer requests are Christ-centered, brother, and I pray and trust that you and Susan will continue to walk in that um, in the days ahead. Well, beloved, let's um, quiet our hearts in prayer and give our attention to God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, while we are on this pilgrim's journey, we pray that your Son, Jesus, would walk with us. That he would take our hands and lead us would guide us through this exile here in this world that is not our home, and that he would safely deliver us to our home in glory. We need now your help to understand your word. More than that, we need your help to understand our hearts. And we pray that you would speak your word into our hearts so that we're transformed into the image and the likeness of your Son, so that we are counseled from Scripture. We are comforted from Scripture. 
And we come to rejoice in your control of our lives and all things. So bless this, your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Most of our problems in life, in the Christian life, come from two things. Forgetting who we are as Christian disciples and forgetting who God is. Now, I don't mean to say we don't have other troubles and other problems. We are sometimes beset with problems and forces that, that come into our lives. There are people who come against us. There are policies and programs that come against us. We suffer in this world. We lose things and lose people in this world. Those are very real problems. I don't mean to sort of uh, underestimate those problems. But more fundamentally, even how we deal with those problems are sort of built upon two other problems, this tendency to forget who we are and this tendency to forget who God is. In our text this morning, Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 1 to 11, we'll camp out in verse 4. In our text this morning, Israel has a problem. In fact, Israel is in a kind of holocaust. They've been conquered by uh, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and they have been carried in waves into exile in Babylon. The temple has been destroyed. The city has been sacked. The northern kingdom was conquered hundreds of years earlier by Assyria. And after three years of, of siege warfare where, um, that led to a famine and people starting, starving, finally Israel, Judah, the southern kingdom, Jerusalem is conquered and God's people are being led out into captivity. This morning, as we begin this new series in Jeremiah 29, a series we've called Bless the Block, the goal of the series is to give to us as a church a systematic blueprint for long-term ministry in our neighborhood, the kind of ministry that blesses our neighbors and blesses our community. The blueprint is found right here in Jeremiah 29. It's based on God's Word, and I have chosen this period of history because I think it speaks directly to what we forget, who we are and who God is. And I think it speaks directly to our neighborhood, at least the perception of many of us toward our neighborhood. So believing that this is God's word and it's for God's people, I want us to give our attention this morning to four questions. Number one, who are we? Who are we as a Christian people? Number two, why embrace exile? Why Embrace Exile? The title of the sermon is uh, Embracing Exile. Number three, how do we do that? How do we embrace an exilic identity and lifestyle? And number four, who is God to exiles? Who is God to exiles? If you have your Bibles, look with me in Jeremiah chapter 29. I'll read verses 1 to 11. 
These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and uh, Gamariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, When seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. This is God's Word. I want to sort of camp out in verse 4, at least use that as our starting place for this series. Notice there, it's just the address of the letter. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Our first question is, who are we? Verse 4 answers that with, we are exiles. We are exiles. In the context of Jeremiah's day, these exiles were, those back in verse 2, they were all the ruling elite, they were all the religious elite, they were all the sort of business class and artisan class, even the ordinary people. What had happened with Nebuchadnezzar was he, he came against the city, conquered the city, and then almost like a parade of captivity led every sort of uh, level or strata of society into captivity into Babylon. You might imagine how dispiriting this would have been to be an Israelite, have a city conquered, Jerusalem, and to see your king marched out by enemy forces. And you're like, oh no, not T'Challa. <laughs> and notice verse 2 says, he took the queen mother too. So, you know, not, not Ramona and Shuri. 
and Mbaku, all of Wakanda, <laughs> led out in captivity in droves. I mean, it was just the utter sacking and devastating of the entire society from the top to the bottom, all carried out as exiles. But, but what is exile? Well, exile is when you must live someplace other than your home, either by force or by choice. There's lots of language in the Bible that describes this. So in the Exodus, for example, in the earliest uh, second book of the Bible, um, God prophesies there that Israel's would be strangers in a strange land. It's the language of exile. They were going to be resident aliens. I like the way one pastor, Jonathan Brooks, puts it in his book, Church Forsaken. He says, exile is the place you don't want to be, very simply. It's being living in a place that you don't want to be. Right now, I know many of you will know this. I know many of you are praying about this, but there are 900,000 Syrian refugees. More than half of them are children. It's one of the biggest movements of people uh, in the history of the world. These folks are fleeing from Syria and finding themselves now in exile in other countries. But when we think of being exiles, we're not thinking only of ancient Israel or even of Syrian refugees. Uh, some of you may have personally experienced exile yourself as immigrants or refugees. Truthfully, every African American is living in the land of our exile. Over centuries, we have managed to make it home, but it ain't where we're from. And we've been here so long and came here against choice, we don't have a return address. This is the land of exile. And not just African Americans, many of you are of European descent. Many of you have come here as a consequence of being exiled from war-torn lands or, or ancestors coming here in a previous generation escaping persecution. Exile is a pretty common story. It's a useful concept for explaining the the lived realities of a lot of people. But in a spiritual sense, we are, if we are God's people, we all of us are exiles. We're strangers in a strange land. And that is central to who we are. I want to I want us to get this. I want us to lock in on this. This is not some abstract sort of, um, sort of marginal idea in the Bible. This is central to the Bible, and it is central to who we are. And if we don't make this central to our understanding of ourselves, it will create problems in terms of how we live in the world. So think about how exile as a theme runs through the Bible from beginning to end. Think of the Old Testament, for example. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3, are exiled from the garden. Sin enters the world. God kicks them out of the garden, puts an angel with a flaming sword to guard their way back so they can't come back. Or think of Abraham called there in Genesis chapter 11 to leave his father's house and home in Ur of the Chaldees, interestingly enough, which is Babylon, and to go to a land that God will show him. It begins a life as a sojourner, a pilgrim, a wanderer, other words for exile. Or all the patriarchs in Genesis chapter 12 to 50, you got Isaac and Jacob and so on. 
They never enter the promised land. They spend all of those generations wandering, walking, settling temporarily, looking for a home. Israel spends 300 years, 400 years in captivity in Egypt. That's in Exodus. Finally, Joseph leads them into the promised land. And once they get into the promised land, then we get a text like Jeremiah 29, where God says, I'm going to kick you out of the land for 70 years because of your sin and disobedience. Back into exile. But it's in the New Testament too. Consider how the New Testament opens. They are back in the land, but so is Rome. And they are exiles in their own home. Or or think of Jesus himself, his very person and work. Isn't the gospel really the story of the Son of God becoming an exile? He leaves heaven, comes to earth, tabernacles among us. The Bible says he had no place to lay his head. And at the depth of his exile, he is crucified for our sins. He is buried three days, uh, for three days and then raised from the grave. The, the depths of his exile is, is right there on the cross where God turns his face away and punishes him in our place. So it's not surprising then that in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, when Peter writes to Christians scattered around Asia, he refers to them as the elect exiles. Or in chapter 2, verse 11, which uh, our sister read for us earlier, it's, it's, not, it's not surprising then that when Peter says um, to those elect exiles, starts to address them how they should live, he says, you should live, you, can, you should conduct yourself as strangers and exiles in the world. This is fundamental to who we are as individual Christians and as an entire Christian community. It's meant to be embraced. So look with me in Hebrews chapter 11. Recall that that's the the so-called hall of fame of faith, where there the writer goes through all these examples of people who live by faith and are commended by God. And down in verse 13, this is what we read. These all died in faith not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear, what? That they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. See, beloved, to live by faith is to live as an exile on the earth. God's people are an exile people from beginning to end. We will be an exile people until Christ returns and brings us into that final kingdom. We should get used to feeling like exiles. T. Scott Daniels in his book, Embracing Exile, puts it this way. People who live in exile feel displaced. 
They feel like resident aliens. They feel like a people who have to live counterculturally. This sense of out of placeness is actually the way the disciples of Jesus ought to feel. Let me put it to you this way. If you feel at home in this world and you're a Christian, something's wrong. Either you may not be a Christian or you have adapted your life to the world to such an extent you actually need to repent of worldliness. God in the gospel has made the entire earth a place of exile for us. It's not our home. It's not where we set up camp permanently and finally. We ought to feel like we are living against the culture in almost every fundamental way because we are strangers in the world and strangers to those who don't know our God. So we need to remember this about ourselves. We are exiles. If we forget that we're exiles, we will have no choice but to settle into worldliness. The Bible tells us quite plainly that if we love this world, we're expressing hostility toward God. Friendship with the world is hostility to God. So an exile's perspective must be our perspective. An exile's identity must be our identity. When Jesus saved us, he made the entire earth a foreign place to us. If you've ever heard someone say, this world is not our home, that is not just a cliche, that's good theology. It's the language of exiles. We need to mean that. We need to embrace that. So who are we? We're God's exiled people in the world. Second question. Why should we embrace this? Why embrace exile? Well, biblically speaking, being an exile is is more than a fact we know about ourselves. It's not just a sort of theological piece of data that we know about ourselves that, that otherwise doesn't affect how we live and think. We actually need to embrace this in a way that we're like the folks in Hebrews 11 verse 13 where it says they acknowledge that they were strangers and exiles on earth. That acknowledgement means they really took it to heart to the extent that it changed them and how they lived. That's what it is to embrace this. And I believe the Lord wants us to embrace this today. That's why these people are celebrated as heroes of the faith in the Bible. These things are written down for us in our day. So why do we want to embrace this? Well, two reasons, two basic reasons. Number one, embracing our exile identity and an exile lifestyle changes our neighborhood. Now, the rest of this series is going to be explaining how that's the case. So we won't spend any time on that right now. But it changes our neighborhood. Number two, before it changes the neighborhood, however, embracing our exile identity changes us. It changes our relationship to God. That's the most important reason to embrace being the exiles that God has made us. It changes our relationship with him for the better. Why is that the case? Well, some of the growth, some of the development, some of the intimacy we want with God, some of the faith we need and the hope we need, 
God wants to produce in us, but it can't be produced if we are people who are always seeking comfort and the familiar. There's some things that are only produced in us when we feel ourselves to be alien and strange and taken out of the familiar and out of the comfortable. We idolize comfort. But when you think about it, comfort seldom brings us closer to God, does it? Need, we actually need exile to grow and change. Well, how does it change us? In two ways. Number one, exile makes us return to God. So keep your finger in Jeremiah 29. Turn back four chapters with me to Jeremiah 25, verses 3 to 9, because Jeremiah has been on this issue of exile for a couple of chapters now. The fundamental reason God sent Israel into captivity is is expressed for us there in verses 3 and 4. Look with me there. God speaking says, or Jeremiah says, For 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, to this day, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets. So you see the problem there. 23 years now, God's been sending prophets to Israel, speaking his word persistently and consistently, and they have refused to listen to him. And so God explains what's next, what's the consequence. Verse 5, saying, Turn now, every one of you, from his evil way and evil deeds, and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers from of old and forever. Do not go after other gods to serve and worship them, or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Then I will do you no harm. So God has sent this warning. Turn away from sin. Turn away from idolatry. Turn back to me. That's the message the people were refusing. It's the message many people refuse today. God calls them from their sin, calls them back to his love. And for 23 years, for 23 days, beloved, how many of you know 23 minutes is too long? They refuse to listen. God said, I would do you no harm, but you didn't listen. So notice now in verses 8 and 9, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. You ever heard saying that some people won't change? Particularly it's brought up in the context of like uh, dealing with drug use or alcohol use. Some people won't change until they hit rock bottom. Exile is rock bottom. That's God saying, I kept pleading with you. I kept pleading with you. I kept calling you, but you would not listen. You would not turn. You would not come back to me. Okay. Exile. And so God will have his people. He will bring his people to him. 
But notice the result of the exile. Now go back to Jeremiah 29. Look with me at verses 11 to 13. God is not merely interested in in punishing them. God has a, a redemptive agenda for them. Verse 11 we read earlier. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Now notice verse 12 and 13. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places. See, God's chastisement of his people, his punishment of his people, is always redemptive. It's not to crush them, to destroy them. It's not just being some vindictive God. He's actually trying to get them to come receive the thing they need most. Him. To turn to him. To trust him. To follow him. And sometimes he produces that in us through exile. He sends us away to bring us back. And so in that way, exile is for our blessing. There's a second thing here. Exile makes us secure or safe in God. That's the other way that it changes us. It, it causes us to seek our security in God and not in our circumstances. I know this sounds almost contradictory. How can being sent into a foreign land with an unfamiliar people, how can that be for our safety and security? How can be being taken away from our home, taken away from our comforts, taken away from everything we know and love, how can that be God's plan for making us safe? Look at me at Jeremiah 24, flipping back again. Jeremiah 24 contains a vision. Verses 1 to 3, we see the vision described. After Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken into exile from Jerusalem, Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, together with the officials of Judah, the craftsmen and metal workers, and had brought them to Babylon, the Lord showed me this vision. Behold, two baskets of figs placed before the temple of the Lord. One basket had very good figs, like first ripe figs. But the other basket had very bad figs, so bad that they could not be eaten. And the Lord said to me, what do you see, Jeremiah? I said, figs. The good figs, very good. And the bad figs, very bad. So bad that they cannot be eaten. So the vision is really clear there, right? You got some figs in one basket that are good. They wrapped in bacon. You know, it's the only way to eat figs or anything. And uh, other figs are very bad, right? Now in verses 4 to 10, we get the explanation. Look with me at verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came to me, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I have sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. Now stop right there. So you got two groups of people. Exiles sent away into captivity, and you got Israelites who remain in the land. When we think about safety and comfort, who do we think is the better group? We normally think, don't we, the folks who remain where they are, where they feel secure, where things feel familiar, where they have comfort, those are the good guys. Those are the guys who, are, who have survived. They got off better. 
But what does God say here in verse 4? The good figs are the ones he sent into exile. Notice now in verse 6. I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. For they shall return to me with their whole heart. That, that's, those are the exiles. Now notice the contrast in verse 8. But thus says the Lord, like the bag figs that are so bad they cannot be eaten, so will I treat Zedekiah, the king of Judah, his officials, the remnant of Jerusalem who remain in this land and those who dwell in the land of Egypt. I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, to be a reproach, a byword, a taunt, and a curse in all the places where I shall drive them, and I will send sword, famine, and pestilence upon them until they shall be utterly destroyed from the land that I gave them, to them and their fathers. What do we make of that? That's unexpected, isn't it? The place of comfort can very often be the place of destruction. The things we coddle, the amenities that we enjoy, the pleasures that we fill our lives with, the possessions that we break ourselves to get, the habit of making a home in a place where you're not supposed to be is ultimately self-destructive. But the place of blessing very often is, is that place where God sends us, where everything's unfamiliar, everything's alien, we're stripped of possession, we don't have comforts, we feel isolated as a community. In that place is God. In that place where God is, is safety. It is better to be in exile with God than to be in the promised land without him. But our habit is to seek comfort, isn't it? To be where we want to be. And in that, we miss the renewal and the life that God gives. Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann put it this way. Exile is the way to new life in new land. Embrace of curse, sticking there of the Old Testament there, embrace of curse is the root of blessing. Thinking of the New Testament, he says, embrace of death is a way to life. That's the logic of the cross, isn't it? Jeremiah announces the central scandal of the Bible, that radical loss and discontinuity do happen and are the source of real newness. The exiles are the real heirs, and conversely, those that cling to the land are the ultimate exiles. Have you considered that while the block, Southeast, Anacostia, may seem like exile to some of you, it may also be the place where you find closeness with God and security? Have you considered that the place that looks less promising, 
less pleasurable, less flourishing, is actually the place where God is and wants his people to be? This is over and over in the Bible. Think about Abraham and his nephew Lot. God was blessing them, blessed them so much that they each had so much cattle, so many servants, that they couldn't even travel together no more. And they were getting into little skirmishes and arguments. And, and, and Abraham said, look, okay, we got to go our separate ways because we just, and, you know, we can't be together. It's too much stuff. And Abraham said to Lot, you, you look up, you choose one side, wherever side you go, I'll go to the opposite side. You remember what Lot did? Lot looked up, he saw a land, saw that it looked green and pleasurable and lush and said, bet, I'm going over here. That was Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham went to the land that looked barren. It's the place of blessing. We keep living by sight when we are meant to live by faith. And we keep looking at neighborhoods with this narrative in our mind. And we are missing what God is doing and the fact that God is over there. Have you considered that while the block might seem like exile, it may also be where you find closeness with God and security in God. Have you considered that the cushier places we usually desire to live is in fact an investment in things other than God to secure our security and safety? That it is in fact idolatry. We need to embrace exile as the path to God and as the path to security with God. This brings us to our third question. Well, how do we do that? How do we embrace an exile identity and an exile lifestyle? This isn't natural to us. It isn't natural to any of us. We don't, we don't think, oh, I know, I got up this morning, I'm going to go find me an exile. It's <laughs> not how we roll. We, we have this longing to be at home, don't we? That longing is good. The problem is that that longing was never meant to be fulfilled in this world. It's meant to be fulfilled in the world to come. That means we have to sabotage our natural tendencies to seek comfort and to order our lives in the familiar. Let me suggest three mind shifts that we have to make in order to embrace life as exiles as God would have us. Number one, we have to rethink our locations. We have to rethink our locations. By definition, we cannot embrace an exile identity while living at home seeking the comforts of home. We can only embrace exilic living fully by living in a place we don't want to be. So that means that some of us will need to be relocators. Some of us will need to be returners. And some of us will need to be remainers. Relocators are people from outside the community who move in. We'll talk about what that looks like as we go through the series. Returners are people who were originally from the community who come back. And remainers are people who decide never to leave. And all of us are in one of those three categories, and, and we have to think through those categories like exiles, not like people from this world. So now just sort of locate yourself. Which, which, which category fits you here? Relocator, returner, remainer? There's a second mind shift I want us to make. 
We have to redefine success. We have to redefine success. We cannot embrace an exile's identity and lifestyle if we think success is getting out of the neighborhood. Jonathan Brooks is a pastor of a church in a neighborhood called Inglewood, south side of Chicago. It is a neighborhood that's marked by whatever you think about when you think about Chicago. In his book, Church Forsaken, he, he, he puts his finger on something that I think gets in the way of exile identity and exile living. This is what Brooks writes. He says, just about anybody who has been deemed successful from neighborhoods like these has moved away. It is understood that to be successful means to move away. If you found yourself living in your neighborhood or in a similar economic state as your childhood, even if it was lower middle class, you had failed. That sound familiar to anybody? See, if we buy into this definition of success and this narrative about our neighborhood is the place to escape, then we want to embrace exile. We won't change personally, and our neighborhoods won't change. We'll continually have a drain of human capital from our neighborhood to go elsewhere in pursuit of comfort. The Christian exile must define success not as getting out and maybe giving back a little bit, right? But as going back. It's not getting out, it's going back. We cannot bless a block we don't live on. Not in a truly transformative way. And, and we won't be transformed personally if we think success is running away from hard places. If we think success is really measured in avoiding exile, we'll be avoiding what God does in the exile. That's not success, beloved. The truth is there are no God-forsaken places, only church-forsaken places. God is in this neighborhood. He wants his people to be in the neighborhood too. But God goes to hard places and he starts to make his move and, and lots of his people are like, yeah, you go ahead with that. It is to get the church where God is. That's the task. If we want to bless the block. One more thing to our mind shift. We've got to begin to ask the where question like exiles. I have to ask the where question with an exile's mentality. The, the one question an exile does not get to decide is where. By definition. If you're in exile, you in that place you didn't want to be. And God sent you there. Jonathan Brooks again points out an interesting thing. We, we often put the what and the why questions to God. God, what do you want me to do? Or why, God, is this happening? We may even put the how question to God. God, I see what you want me to do. How do you want me to do it? But we very rarely raise the question where with God. God, where do you want me to be? With whom do you want me to be? Those are exile questions. Those are people who, who live like they have no home on this earth and therefore are game to go anywhere God would send them. Where do you want me to be? 
Brooks asked some challenging questions. Will we stop only asking God what he wants you to do and begin asking where God might want you to do it and with whom? Because here's the problem about being taken to Babylon. The land is full of Babylonians. And if you have gotten kind of self-righteous as an Israelite, you don't want to be with those Babylonians. Plus, they just conquered us. We don't like them. So it's not just where, but also with whom. And we have God's perspective on the place and the people already in that place. Second question, will you stop only asking what you can do, what you can do to change the world and start asking where and with whom in the world you might be changed the most? In other words, will you stop asking God questions with a savior complex and start asking God questions like you need help too? Or number three, will you stop asking what is the most comfortable fit for you and start asking where you can go to be with those who make you the most uncomfortable? We've got to drive a stake through the heart of comfort. It is not a biblical principle upon which to build your life. These are exile-embracing questions. They require we make a, a mind shift to focus more on the where question and that we seek God's answer to that where question rather than our own. So, is it possible that God's greatest work is being hindered, His greatest work in us is being hindered by our even greater desire for comfort where and with whom we choose. Is it possible that God's greatest blessings for us are being hindered by our greater dreams for ourselves? Are we missing God's work because we refuse to be in God's place as exiles? Which brings us to our final question. First three questions were addressing the first thing we often forget, who we are. And now this final question, I just want to address briefly who God is. Help us to remember who God is. Jeremiah 29 verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This short phrase, this short sentence gives us three phrases that give us three clues as to who God is to the exile. Number one, he's the God who counsels. It's the God who counsels. That first phrase, thus says the Lord. This phrase is important for two reasons. Number one, it shows that the Bible is God's word and the people who wrote it knew it. The idea that the, God, that the Bible is God's word is not something people made up later. It's something that people understood consciously as they were speaking and writing God's word. So in the scripture, we have the, the, the revealing of the mind and the will and the knowledge of God. Thus says the Lord. But secondly, it shows that God is still speaking to his people in exile. Now, that little phrase, thus saith the Lord, in this context is dripping with grace. Remember why God sent them into exile. For 23 years, they would not listen to him. 
He kept sending prophets, kept sending prophets persistently, giving him the word, and they persistently rejected the word of God. Now they've been conquered and sent into exile, just like God said. And you know, the tendency would be for us to go, God mad at us. That's why we over here. He ain't going to talk to us no more because we petty like that. (laughs) And so this is full of grace that God is still speaking to his people through his word to counsel them, to guide them, to give them knowledge and wisdom for living as exiles. It's striking. Before, they listened to everything and everyone but God. (laughs) But now in exile... They're listening real hard for his voice alone. They are pushing aside distraction to get a word from the Lord in their pain. Exile becomes the place where God's voice is clearest. Can I just add a little, little midrash here, a little Jewish <laughs> commentary here? You cannot properly read and understand the Bible unless you read it like an exile. If you read the Bible from up top, as privileged, comfortable, powerful people, it will actually distort much of what you read in the Bible. Do you know how much of the Bible is exilic literature? The major prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, uh, the books about the return, Ezra, Nehemiah, Habakkuk, Haggai, all these guys, the prophets are, are mostly in the exile. And, 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 and not just the formal exile in Babylon, but, but think about the Exodus story itself, the Torah itself. It is written to people who for four centuries were slaves. That's got to have theological significance. That's got to have hermeneutical significance. Fancy word, hermeneutical, how you interpret the Bible. It's got to have implications for how you interpret the Bible. For this Lord who is speaking is speaking to exiles, speaking to slaves, speaking to the disenfranchised, not the powerful and the celebrity, the broken, the downcast. And that's why thus saith the Lord is a phrase dripping with grace, dripping with mercy, dripping with comfort. God is speaking to broken, bruised, battered people flung away from their home, captured by an enemy, living in a foreign land with nothing except God. So God is the God who counsels, and that counsel, listen, it leads, number two, to comfort. Notice, he is the God who comforts. See that next phrase? The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Jeremiah gives us two titles here. That first title, the Lord of hosts, you might have a translation that says, Lord Sabaoth. We we sang that in the hymn a moment ago. Or the Lord of armies, or the Lord Almighty. The, The word host there is a military term. It's describing a, a military in its, in its ranks and in its battalions. It's a word that's used of the angels of heaven. It's a word that's used of saints. So when the Bible talks about the Lord of hosts, it's describing God as the captain of the armies of heaven. See, you missed your place to shout. <laughs> he is the God who rules an un numberable army of angels who are dressed in battle gear, who are arrayed in battalions, ready to move at his command on behalf of his people. Y'all almost warm. You're almost there. Let me try it one more time. 
Israel has been crushed by an earthly army, which was the greatest army in the world at the time, Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. They have been dragged away from their capital city into the capital city of Babylon. They are now there as exiles in a land that is not their own with an army that has been defeated. And yet Jeremiah speaks for God and says he is the Lord of hosts, the God, the captain of the armies of heaven. How many know you can lose all the earthly battles in the world and still have the victory because God fights for you? He's the Lord of hosts. And, and if that wasn't enough, Jeremiah doesn't take any chances. In the next title, he brings it right home, the God of Israel. He's not Nebuchadnezzar's God. He's not the God of the other nations. He's the God of Israel. He just wants you to know now and to be comforted by the fact that this same God who sent you into exile, he got an army too. This same God who sent you in the exile, he's still your God. He's still for you. You're still his people. You've been hard-headed and stiff-necked. He had to break you and to send you in the exile, but he has not forsaken you. He is still your God. You are still his people, and his army is ready. He is the God who comforts us in our exile. That title, the Lord of hosts, shows up in really interesting places in the Bible. The prophets love it. I think Jeremiah uses it some 46 times, Isaiah about 71 times. But it normally shows up when God's people are in trouble. Just a few cherry-picked places. When Joshua is going to take the promised land in Joshua chapter 5, and an angel of the Lord appears to him. And you know, Joshua like, uh, whose side you on? You for us against us? And the angel says, neither. He serves the Lord of hosts. Or when Israel was commanded in 1 Samuel chapter 15 to destroy the Amalekites, the Amalekites who had caused them so much trouble in the Exodus, God presents himself to them as the Lord of hosts. When David came face to face with Goliath, he comes out and faces that giant. He says, in the name of the Lord of hosts, 1 Samuel 17, 45. Or, or when David returned the ark from the Philistines, 2 Samuel 6. They are rejoicing and praising God, the Lord of hosts. And even when God promised to establish David's house forever in 2 Samuel 7, it is the Lord of hosts that David praises. And this is why this title is associated with conflict and victory and comfort. Hear how the psalmist puts it, Psalm chapter 46, or Psalm 46, verse 7. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. And again in verses 10 and 11, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. When facing exile, do we look to our powerful God to be our protector and comfort? The most significant threat we face is not living someplace we don't want to live. The most significant face, threat we face is living someplace we want to live, but without God. 
Again, better is exile with God than the promised land without him. He's our power. He's our comfort. He's our shield. The righteous run to him and they're safe. Who is God in our exile? He's the God who counsels by speaking. He's the God who comforts with his power. Number three, he's the God who controls our exile. See the third phrase there in Jeremiah 29, verse 4. This, the God of Israel, is the one who sent all the exile into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. In other words, they're not there by accident. They are there by God's sovereign control and decree. Beloved, our exile is not a matter of circumstance. Our exile is a matter of a good God planning for us to live in a hard place for our best life. It's a good God planning for us to live in a hard place. Exile is hard, but it is for our best life. And he will have us in exile until our hearts are turned to him and until his plans are fulfilled. Israel was sitting in exile for 70 years. And in exactly 70 years, under King Cyrus, we saw this in our series in, in Ezra, under King Cyrus, God turned the heart of that pagan king to send the people back to Israel to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the city. He did it to the exact year. So our exile never lasts a day longer or ends a day shorter then our sovereign God intends it. He controls all that's happening to us and he does it for our good. Even the hard stuff will produce in us the good stuff that God wants from us. And when the exile is over, we go home. For Israel, that meant returning to the promised land. But for us, beloved, that means something far greater. Jesus says in John chapter 14 that he goes to prepare a place for us. That in his father's house, there are many mansions or many rooms. He says, if this wasn't true, I wouldn't tell you that. He goes to prepare a place for us first by dying on the cross for us. That's preparing a place for us because it is removing our sin. Our sin is nailed to him on that cross. And he's buried for three days and he is raised from the grave three days later. And the Bible says that his resurrection is proof that God accepted his sacrifice for us, but it is also for our justification, for our righteousness with God, because no one will come into the presence of God who is not perfectly righteous. Well, that means if you're depending upon your own life to enter the presence of God, you're doomed. Because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. <laughs> but if you're trusting Jesus for your righteousness, <laughs> then, then, then you are secure, you're, you're safe, you rejoice because his righteousness is perfect. And through faith in him, crucified for our sins, raised from the grave, all of his righteousness now is credited to us so that we have the righteousness of Christ through faith. 
And so now a way is prepared for us to come back into the presence of God. And our big brother, our Savior Jesus, has gone on ahead of us to make ready that place so that when he comes again, our exile will be over. He will gather his people and he will lead us home, not to Jerusalem in the Middle East, but to a new Jerusalem, a new heavens, a new earth, a new city, wherein is righteousness and perfection, glory and love. That's our, that's our home. And that's why this place can never be home for us. And that's why we should hold loosely our attachments to uh, something called home in this earth, because our real home, well, that's coming. And it's glorious. And it's kept for us by the power of God. And now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I'm here to tell you, you are right now homeless. You are the worst kind of exile. You are shut out from God's presence. And you may think this is where you're supposed to be. So that when God's judgment comes upon the earth, you're going to be unsuspecting and overwhelmed. But you weren't made for that. You were made in God's image. You were made in God's image. You were made for God, to know God, to be with him. Your life has value and dignity. But it won't be real life until you trust in Jesus and turn from sin and begin to look to Jesus as your Savior and your God the one who you obey through faith until you start to look toward your real home where Christ is seated and where we are headed. Exile doesn't last forever. There is an everlasting kingdom coming. We have a place in it if we are Christ. But right now, we need to embrace this exile life so that we would have everything that God has for us in a relationship with him, and so that we would be the missional witnessing community God means us to be on our block. We'll unpack that next week. Let's pray together. Lord, in our pilgrim journey, We do need Jesus to walk with us. You made the whole earth to be a land of exile for us. There's no place here that we should call home. It's because we have a a better home, a, a better city, a better country. We pray that you would work this exile identity deeper and deeper into our souls, into our beings so that we be freed from all the idolatries of earthbound living, the idolatry of country, the idolatry of culture, the idolatry of party, the idolatry of place, the idolatry of comfort, the idolatry of family, all the false gods that we bow down to. Free us from them. Free us to roam the earth like joyful pilgrims, enduring the hardship with faith and confidence in the promise of a home to come.
And Lord, in that process, transform us, Lord. Make us more like Christ. We declare it is more important for us to be conformed to the image of Christ than comfortable in this world. And Lord, in transforming us, we pray, bless our neighbors, bless the block, make your name great. Do this, O Lord, for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.